Welcome to this event, Me and My Beliefs, Challenges of Identity and Society. My name is Karen O'Brien. I'm head of the Humanities Division here at Oxford University, and it's my very great pleasure just to briefly int introduce this event, which is being sponsored by Torch, the Oxford Centre for Research in the Humanities. It's part of a series, a headline series we have within Torch called Humanities and Identities, which is being led by Professor Elika Burma, who's sitting here just to my right, uh, that has been funded and very generously supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, uh, and this event also by the Vice-Chancellor's Diversity Fund. It's a series in Torch that has allowed us to think about the very complex uh, facets of our diverse cultural world, to reflect on our own academic practice, and also, and actually very interestingly, to reflect on the curricula that we deliver here in Humanities. As part of this series, Torch has supported a very wide range of activities, including uh, conferences and seminars, some spectacular community and public engagement events, including the recent Being Human Festival, uh, which we uh, jointly uh, took part in with, along with the Pitt Rivers Museum and the Oxford Natural History Museum. We have a postdoctoral research fellow, and we have panel discussions like the one that we're about to have today. Today, we welcome Bishop Libby Lane, who was the first female bishop within the Church of England. Uh, our own Professor Yash Elsner, who is Professor of Late Antique Art and Project Lead for uh, the Empires of Faith Project, with which a really exciting new Ashmolean exhibition uh, is associated, and I'm sure you'll hear a bit more about that. And also about Shasta Aziz, who is a journalist and writer and founder of the Everyday Bigotry Project. It's going to be chaired by Professor Elika Burma, who is Professor of World Literatures here at Oxford, and I'm very much looking forward to what everybody has to say and to an opportunity for audience <coughs> question and answers after the discussion has taken place. So enjoy the evening. I know I'm going to. Well, thanks very much to Karen for starting us off. Um, it's a really great honour and, and pleasure to, to introduce this, um, this impressive panel of, of speakers to explore with us today um, our beliefs, our identities, and how our identities correlate to our beliefs. Um, what we're going to do is to um, invite um, responses to this question of how religion is understood in wider society and how this impacts our identity from the three speakers, beginning with Bishop Libby at the end. Um, and then we'll have some discussion amongst ourselves and then open for some really, I hope, robust uh, and interesting discussion um, with, with you, the audience. Um, I'm going to introduce this, the three speakers in a row because um, we were thinking amongst ourselves that that's probably better than, as it were, breaking off each time to, to introduce them. Um, so in order then, um, um, our first really significant figure to, to comment on the, on the core question is Bishop Libby Lane, who was consecrated as the 8th Bishop of Stockport at York Minster on Monday the 26th of January 2015, very excitingly, nearly, nearly three years ago now. Prior to that, she was Vicar of St. Peter's, Hale and St. Elizabeth's Ashley. She had been Dean of Women in Ministry for the Diocese until shortly before her consecration as Bishop. As far as her, her broader biography is concerned, after school in Manchester and here at Oxford, 
she's an Oxford alum, and for that reason is doubly welcome. She trained for ministry at Cramer Hall in Durham, and where she was uh, ordained a deacon in 1993 and a priest in 1994, having served her curacy in Blackburn, Lancashire. Prior to moving to Hale, Bishop Libby was also team vicar in the Stockport Southwest team and assistant diocesan director of ordinance in that diocese. She's also chair of the Board of Education in the Diocese of, of Chester. You are a busy lady, Bishop. <laughs> um, and she is chair of trustees also for the Children's Society. Um, she, is, she is an elected member of the House of, House of Bishops, being first female bishop, and she is a chair for the General Synod of the Church of England. Second up in our lineup is uh, Josh Elsner, who is Professor of Late Antique Art in the Faculty of Classics here at Oxford. Since 2013, he has been Principal Investigator of the Empire of Faith Project between the British Museum and Wolfson College, Oxford, which is exploring the visual cultures of world religions in the Mediterranean and Asia uh, between 200 and 800 AD. And I'm sure some of you will have already seen, and if you haven't, do prioritize going, the major international exhibition rising from the project that Josh has been working on, uh, which runs at the Ashmolean Museum until February 2018. Josh's main interest is in the art of the Roman Empire, broadly conceived to include late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, including Byzantium, as well as the pre-Christian classical world. And he began his researching life by looking at the way art works were viewed in antiquity. And this has led to interest also in all kinds of reception from ritual and pilgrimage to and including also religious art. And then our third speaker, certainly not least, last but not least, um, Shaista Aziz is a freelance journalist and writer specializing on identity, race, gender, and Muslim women. Her work, her journalism, has appeared widely in The Guardian, Globe and Mail, New York Times, BBC, and Huffington Post. She is, as well as being a broadcaster, a political commentator, and the founder of the Everyday Bigotry Project, seeking to disrupt narratives around racism, Islamophobia, and bigotry. Formerly, she worked as an international aid worker with Oxfam and also Action Aid and MSF and has traveled and worked extensively across the Middle East, East and West Africa, and also Pakistan in emergency and conflict settings. Having seen at first hand how conflict and sexual violence impact women and girls, Shaista in 2017 this year founded the Intersectional Feminist Foreign Policy, seeking to influence the creation of foreign policy that does no further harm to women and girls, especially in conflict impacted countries. Shasta is British-Pakistani and was born and raised here in Oxford, uh, so she too can comment very much on the intersection of these questions of religion, belief, and identity here and now today, both locally and globally. So it's a great pleasure now for me to turn to invite Bishop Libby first to address our central question of our beliefs and our identity, how they impact. Thank you so uh, good evening. It's a, a real pleasure to uh, be with you this evening. Thank you for uh, the invitation. 
I'm Libby Lane. What you will know about me is that, uh, as was mentioned in my introduction, um, I am the first woman to be consecrated bishop in the Church of England. I want to reflect uh, a little with you this evening um, around some of that and what arises out of it. Um, around um, identity as a woman, uh, around uh, identity as one who is perceived, possibly therefore, uh, to be on the margins, and around uh, identity as, as belonging to a religion. Um, I am not what might be called a cradle Christian, by which I mean... Although I was christened as an infant, uh, as many were of my era, um, I was not nurtured in the uh, practice or expression of Christian faith in my home. Um, I was nurtured in all sorts of other really important and formational beliefs. Um, so uh, my family... My parents in particular nurtured in me a belief in loyalty and in tenacity. Um, they nurtured in me a self-belief, all of which um, have been crucial um, to my sense of identity and to my navigation of society. Um, I was introduced to the things of religious belief, and the experience and practice of faith because I was invited uh, to a church youth group when I was 11. And it wasn't instantaneous, but in retrospect, it almost feels that way, um, that there was a, a kind of a before and after um, from that encounter very quickly from my introduction to that uh, small rural Christian community in Derbyshire, um, my sense of uh, my own identity, uh, my sense of my place in the world, my sense of meaning for the world, my sense of purpose, um, my motivation uh, for myself and for my life uh, were rooted in uh, a Christian identity. Um, a, a, that gave me, at a really, I recognise a really crucial moment in my adolescence, um, a sense of identity, belonging and purpose that cohered around the person of Jesus and the inherited teachings of the church. And so really... I cannot remember a time when the things of Christian faith were not an integral part of who I understand myself to be and what I understand the world to be. It has shaped and informed all my adolescence and adulthood. In the midst of that growing up, uh, in that context, with a, a, 
a non-believing, certainly non-practicing home, but a really clear sense of place in a Christian community. Um, my sense of vocation, of exercising my following of Jesus um, in the context of being ordained to public ministry in the Church of England, um, was in that local environment entirely affirmed and encouraged. At no point was I even aware, I guess, as that developed, that being a woman meant that that was inappropriate. Um, by the time I actually got to testing that, um, that vocation in the church, um, I was aware, institutionally, um, that what the church permitted women to exercise um, in terms of the public expression of that vocation was limited. But my own local nurture and encouragement had never at any point suggested that being a woman meant that it was inappropriate to, um, to be responding to that prompting. In fact, that local context was what encouraged and prompted it. I feel extraordinarily blessed that uh, my journey through my um, ordained, my professional public ministry um, has not at any point been delayed or obviously constrained by my being a woman. Um, I was among the first cohort of women who were selected for ordination, trained and ordained in exact parallel um, with their male peers. Um, I know there are countless women and men who for decades, centuries, um, prayed and struggled and argued and suffered in order that I was able simply to push open the doors that they had worked to unlock. And in fact, once I was ordained, um, I have found, in terms of my own ministry, that the church has been um, accommodating and flexible about my lived, around my own lived experience um, of being uh, the spouse of somebody who is also ordained and being a parent and that there has never been a point at which my application for a post or my exploration of a ministry has felt as if it has been limited or constrained because I'm a woman. That I am the first woman to have been consecrated a bishop in the Church of England, the first, but praise God, no longer the only, um, uh, there are now 12 of us. Um, it is something that no individual can um, apply for or offer themselves for. You can only be a bishop if the church invites you 
to respond to an invitation to explore a particular Episcopal ministry. Um, the fact that I am the first, I think, is an is a accident of timing, really. Um, any other of the 12, um, the other 11 who are now bishops, if the timing had been different, could have been the first. Um, it, it happens that it's, it's me. Being a woman has never been my primary identity. I've never understood myself as a woman anything. I'm just Libby, who has been whatever it is I have been, a priest, a vicar, a chaplain, um, and so on. So it was something of a, not exactly a surprise, but sort of a surprise to discover that I am a woman um, <laughs> when I was made a bishop, because that was what people talked about. That was what drew attention. Um, and it wasn't my primary identity. And so I have had to work through what it means to hold that place, um, to have a very public place because I happen to be a woman, and actually only because I happen to be a woman. Um, the, the nation and the world simply doesn't take that much notice of Church of England bishops anymore, um, which I might wish they, they would. Um, they simply don't. Uh, the attention is because I am a woman. Um, and so that has partly encouraged me to be much more articulate about the things that I always knew to be true. I believe that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I believe that I reflect the glory of God. I believe that being a woman is part of what God is. I believe that each one of us is extraordinarily and infinitely precious to God. I believe that God made that manifest by taking on our flesh. I believe that my flesh has been saved and redeemed by the incarnation of Christ. God taking on human flesh is my flesh that is saved. I believe that I, as a woman, am an equal human being because God made it so. And that to demean or diminish or limit, to abuse or neglect me or my sisters because we happen to inhabit female flesh is not only potentially a crime and an injustice but actually an affront to God. Being a woman means that I am perceived 
to be on the margins, to have been on the margins. Um, I want to make uh, really clear that actually, um, I think my marginalisation is really limited. I am a woman, but I am a white, Oxford-educated, um, middle-class woman with extraordinary amounts of influence and agency, and that has always been the case. Um, but I think that... Um, Perception of being my being a woman means that I speak from the margins is also <coughs> really important for me to ha reflect on and to articulate. Uh, because it is all too easy for me, um, as a white, Oxford-educated, middle-class bishop of the Church of England, to collude <coughs> in the misuse and abuse of power that all those um, identifiers can generate. So being able to identify the ways in which um, either I have been or am or am perceived to be marginalised is actually really important. And again, the fundamental reason why I believe that's important um, is not only a matter, although these things matter, not only a matter of, of justice um, and of uh, human commonality and our shared responsibility for one another, those things matter, but also because I believe that God chooses to work from the margins. And my belief in that is rooted in my understanding of Jesus. It's where God chose to be in the human experience, on the margins. My belief is that God chose to lay aside all the power and glory and majesty of the Godhead in order to become human flesh, a, a, a baby and all that that involves in terms of uh, lack of agency and dependence. Um, and to be a baby um, in, a, in a household and in a community that was itself um, politically um, on the margins of its world. And that God chose to live within that flesh from the edges to the point of um, dereliction and destruction. That my faith teaches me that God choose to, chose to work salvation on the cross. Um, the mark of absolute uh, marginalisation and dereliction. So our, my um, engagement with and need to articulate what it is to be on the margins is an act of faith as well as an act of justice. Finally, I just want to reflect very briefly about my belief in 
religion. Um, there is a, a suggestion that, that the world is um, either being getting more religious or getting less religious. Um, and I think actually both those things are true. Um, so I think the narratives that we inherit in the West, that, um, that the world is getting progressively more secular, um, or that the world is getting progressively more westernised, um, or that in order to survive in the contemporary world, religion has to be increasingly accommodating to society. I think all three of those narratives have actually broken down. Um, and I think that that is evident uh, in some really kind of local and, and specific ways. Um, so I think those things affect our identities um, in terms of human household. I think they affect our identities in terms of community. And I think they affect our identities in terms of, of society. Um, I think when we lose religion, we lose um, a really significant heart um, of all those things. I think religion has again, suggested three ways to respond to um, what may be perceived as challenge. So it can respond by attempting to conquer society, or it can respond by deciding to withdraw from society. Or thirdly, and what I would want to um, ally myself to, is to tell a different story for society, um, to give uh, a new language, a new courage, a new hope um, to what it is to be human. Um, I want to be really clear, I don't mean religion as a substitute for science, I don't mean religion as in opposition to free society. For me those things are not in opposition. Um, what I mean is religion as what I would call a consecration, um, an honouring, a blessing of the bonds that connect us. Uh, religion as a redemption of the drive towards solitude that is destructive. Uh, that is religion as loyalty um, and love. Religion that enables people to practice altruism and compassion. Religion, as I would call it, as covenant. All of that, I think, helps to sustain and reweave households and community and society. I don't think to do that, religion has to be um, where power is. I don't think religion has to be in the majority. But I think it has an essential place. Um, 
in our lives, uh, both for our own individual identities and for our society. Thank you. Thank you for coming, and thank you very much. Um, I can, can I write something on here? I'm a professor, you see. So, um, we're, so we're talking about beliefs and identity. And I just wanted to um, uh, define, just write down uh, something that changed fundamentally in the history of the Western tradition around the concept of belief. Um, those of you who once learned some Greek or Latin may recognize some of these words. So this is the word, pistuo, means I believe or I trust in Greek. It takes the dative normally. I trust this, I trust that. In Latin, same thing, credo, recognize this one, takes the dative. Christianity came along and it reinvented this terminology. Not I believe, or tr in the sense of I trust, but I believe in something abstract, not something that I necessarily see. The story of Doubting Thomas is a famous story. Um, I believe in something um, beyond what I can see. Um, and pistio in, uh, uh, oh, Latin, pistio ace and the accusative, pistio, uh, credo in and the accusative. So the famous words of the creed, credo, in unum deum. In terms of a whole pattern of ancient languages, that is um, an unthinkable concept. And then something using those languages uh, comes in and changes it. And the question where, where I come from um, in thinking about... Um, the place of art, of material culture, um, of what you might call the um, embodiments that underpin um, uh, people's ethical lives in terms of religion, um, it's actually very difficult to think of it in terms of the, um, the addition, I believe in. It's the world of material objects in creating and helping people think their religion and this is across religions. Uh, almost every religion, uh, anthropologically, uh, you can think of um, um, uh, Aboriginal religions as well as uh, textual religions with scriptures and so on. They have a sense of belief in the sense of trusting their world, trusting um, and creating the, that world that they trust through the objects um, that, um, uh, as it were, support their religious life. Um, and those of you who've been listening to uh, Neil McGregor on Radio 4, he's been doing a little bit of that kind of thing, actually, talking about some of these issues, and particularly some very simple um, 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 uh, artefacts that people use in their everyday lives, as well as grand things. And the, 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 the question then becomes that we have, if you like, two kind of concepts of belief. One of them, very important, 
for um, the structuring of theologically motivated religions, religions that um, um, uh, uh, speak to a series of creeds. Uh, on the other hand, something that is really about um, making uh, the basis for an ethical life. And um, one of the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the interesting things about those material um, elements, if you take the word um, church, for example, or the, the Greek, uh, the, the Latin word, um, this one, ecclesia, that's the word for a church, as in a building, but it's also the word for the community that occupies that church. Um, uh, and in fact, the word synagogue, meaning a group coming together, um, uh, 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 the, the notion of buildings, but is also about communities. And the question then of the place of an individual versus a community, and how um, a kind of material culture of objects can support and help, um, as it were, building a, um, a communal identity around religion, and one which, was, which actually um, uh, can include the marginal in its many regards, not only questions of women, and, but of race, all kinds of marginalities, um, and give a place which, if you like, the structures of belief may be very difficult to negotiate around. Um, after all, uh, 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 in, uh, in Byzantium, uh, 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 between Byzantium and the West, they went to war about an iota. Um, uh, you, you know that, I don't give an iota. Um, uh, whether whether um, it's all, it, it was all about whether the, it was the same or like in terms of the relations of the father and the son. So that's, I mean, you can, you can get very, very precise about very difficult things, or it can be much more, um, much simpler. And um, in a sense, thinking about religion through material culture is about thinking some of those simplicities. Um, in a way, um, you can, one of the interesting aspects is that religions, uh, if you go to uh, the exhibition at the Ashmolean, we've tried to show this, the, the, the great world religions, uh, none of them come into, into being in a kind of spontaneous um, way uh, and become what they are immediately. They are the result of uh, complex mixes of previous um, uh, uh, cultures and human experiences which um, are brought together um, and uh, somehow condense into a particular new model. And that new model is partly defined by scripture, but it's partly defined by uh, the kinds of um, objects, materials, iconographies, and visual identities that people create. So uh, one wonderful example is um, uh, Islam uh, in the um, uh, uh, 7th, 8th centuries conquered, basically conquered the world. It went, conquered uh, uh, the whole Persian Empire, the whole uh, half of the Roman Empire, um, North Africa, Spain, right through to the borders of India. And that's a world of multiple, multiple cultures, very old, many, many languages, many different kinds of visual forms. And one of the ways in which you create a, a cohesive identity among those people is actually to move towards a calligraphic form of um, artistic expression, whereby the, um, uh, uh, the verses of the Quran and the, the imagery of an Arabic that became extraordinarily beautiful in its expressions uh, could actually help to form an identity that would be inclusive to an unthink I mean really an extraordinarily wide range of, um, of people and cultures uh, without the benefits of the kinds of communication of course that we uh, look at easily now and so um, you one can see ways in which that could be very 
positive, and it could also define difference, not necessarily in an aggressive way, although it could be defined as aggressive in some contexts, from those cultures which had um, either uh, three-dimensional deities, as in on the Indian side, or as on the Western side, Byzantine side, uh, two-dimensional uh, images, icons, and so on. So um, those, those ways of articulating difference between cultures and yet uh, creating spaces for um, uh, communal solidarity within cultures um, is, it seems to me, a very powerful and important part of religion and one that it is easy, perhaps, to um, uh, lose sight of. The last thing I wanted to say is... Um, uh, uh, just a, a word for um, Ashoka. I don't know if people have come across Ashoka, but in the great edicts of the emperor who um, uh, uh, conquered India in the 3rd century BC and spread Buddhism, um, there is a repeated insistence on um, the respect for multiple and different uh, belief systems, <coughs> multiple and different um, uh, uh, cults. Uh, he spread Buddhism, but he was by no means exclusively Buddhist. And in fact, in the world of early Buddhism, there is um, an immense mix of uh, other cults, Jainism, the many, many of the, cult, uh, of the uh, different cults that became subsequently we think of as Hinduism, um, actually some Greek religion, all of those things are spread and mixed. And later on, uh, there would be forms of Christianity and of forms of Islam that would actually be part of that uh, extraordinary mix in um, uh, the the um, the uh, north of India and the the uh, the sort of Pakistan uh, Afghanistan area Bactria, um, and it's actually uh, a wonderful thing to think of the possibility of um, a world of mutual respect in which those um, uh, uh, there can be dialogue and there can be difference, of course, but the question of uh, as it were uh, uh, um, ethical underpinnings four different um, uh, 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 belief systems which, although they may disagree, they may disagree with respect. Not a bad thing to remind ourselves of um, in the modern world. Not all things are better as we move on. <laughs> Cheers. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Shai Sturzies. I was born and raised in this beautiful city of Oxford, which is my home, uh, into a Pakistani immigrant Muslim family. My father emigrated to the UK from Pakistan at the age of 16. He was still a child, and yet he gave up his childhood to take the opportunity to build a life here in the UK, to earn money, to send home to his family in Pakistan, and also to create a future family here in Oxford. My mother arrived in Oxford in the early 20s. I'm always humbled and moved when I think back to what it must have been like for my late and beloved father, a young Muslim immigrant, not yet a man, to arrive in the UK back then in the 60s. He was an adventurous child with a fiercely inquisitive and bright mind and someone who had the ability to connect with people regardless of who they were, where they were from or what they believed in. Back in 1960s England, back then in 1960s England, it wasn't always a welcoming place for immigrants, but especially those immigrants who were not white and were former subjects of the British Empire. 
Yet, my parents, and I will always be internally grateful to them for this, raised us to try and understand the world, to understand difference, and to challenge our preconceptions and ourselves. My father told us, his three children, about some of his experiences of racism and bigotry, the signs in the guest houses and pubs in Oxford that read, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. Of course, a lot of progress has been made since those days. Much has changed here in Oxford and across the country. However, in 2017, racism, hostility and bigotry is still not a thing of the past, far from it. And in fact, hostility towards those deemed other, people of colour, Muslims, Jews, immigrants, refugees, remains a real and present danger in many people's lives. As a woman of faith, a Muslim woman, the child of immigrants, and a third culture kid, I have multiple identities, as most of us do in this room and beyond. I grew up, as many children of immigrants have, in a culture that was not the same as my parents' culture, and not a culture they were indigenous to. They found their feet and their way around Oxford and the country, they made their home, as we, their children, found ourselves navigating our way through the complexities of being raised as products of two cultures and our Muslim faith and identity. My brothers and I attended St Ebbs Primary School, a short walk away from Hinksy Park, which was situated at the end of the road we lived on. We spent most of our summer holidays playing in Hinksy Park, paddling in the pool and larking around in the boating lake. One of my most earliest and vivid memories of being an outsider and other in my city of Oxford, where I was born, involved Hinksy Park. It remains one of my earliest memories of racism. It is incredible what a child remembers. It was the 1980s. The fascist and violent National Front racists arrived in our city and marched on Oxford. They went to Hinksy Park and vandalised the park with racist graffiti. On the day they arrived in the city, my parents kept my brother and I off school and my aunt and uncle brought my cousins over to our house. We were told that we were not allowed to go outside our house or near the windows or peep out of the curtains because the National Front had threatened to burn down the house of any black people, Pakistani people and people of colour. Of course, they didn't use such respectful language and my parents, uncle and aunt were not taking any chances so we stayed home all day with the curtains drawn. This was my earliest memory of knowing that my identity was a problem for some in my country. I was five years old. I retell these stories here, stories about violent racism, because racism is entwined with being a British Muslim. Many commentators say that Islamophobia is a construct. Muslims are a faith group. They are not a race. If only life was so simple. Identity is not a standalone construct. Being a Muslim in the UK intersects and overlaps with class, gender and race identities. As social mobility stagnates in our country, British working class Muslims find themselves being penalised and lagging behind their peers based on their faith, patriarchy inside and outside their communities and open and mainstreamed Islamophobia and racism. Going back to my childhood, after school we would dash home and change out of our school uniform and hurriedly scoff down cheese and cucumber sandwiches before the mosque van would pull up outside our house to pick up my middle brother and I to take us to the mosque on Bath Street in St Clements. This is where we learnt the Quran after school in Arabic. When we were growing up, 
I never knew what a Shia was or what a Sunni was. No one ever asked me what type of Muslim I was. And I didn't feel scared that I would be subjected to verbal and physical violence because of my faith. My Muslim identity was not a problem for me as I remember it back then. It was my Pakistani identity, being a non-white girl. This was why I was racially bullied at school. People are often surprised that I had the upbringing that I had. To me, there was nothing unique about how I was raised. I just thought everyone had been privileged to be raised in a similar way by parents who tried hard to ensure their children understood and knew who they were and that they were in tune with their multiple identities. My Muslim identity took on a much more complex and loaded meaning for me and the people around me after 9-11. But unlike millennium Muslims who have grown up in the shadow of this terrorist attack and the subsequent wars that have followed, I was in my 20s when 9-11 happened and was working as a journalist for the BBC in the main television newsroom in London. I had agency, a voice, and I was involved in producing news stories and coverage seen by millions of people. Yet, I didn't feel like I had a voice or that I had agency. I felt mostly scared of what was happening around me to my friends and family in the form of increased racial violence, threats and abuse based on our Muslim identities. I spent subsequent years internalizing that racism, Islamophobia and pain. And it very much feels like we are now living in a similar climate post-Brexit. One of the many issues that have been raised here in the UK in the aftermath of Brexit revolves around identity. What does it mean to be British, to look British, to sound British. I was born and raised here. I live here. I'm unquestionably British. Who gets to decide who is in fact British? I've been told that when I speak, I sound like Harry Potter. I mean, which grown woman wouldn't want to sound like a prepubescent wizard boy? <laughs> I'm pretty sure wizards are hashtag haram, but hashtag halal life goals. Whoop. I've lost count of the number of times here in the UK and around the world that I've been asked, where are you from? No, where are you really from? I was asked this question early, earlier this year at Hargeisa International Airport in Somaliland. I was working in Somaliland gathering stories from women and children about the impact of the devastating drought on their lives. Immigration officials were bamboozled by my very non-British looking appearance, my Harry Potter accent and my British passport. After a 10 minute conversation about where are you from? No, really, where are you from? An immigration officer asked me, are you 100% Muslim? To which I responded, no, I'm 65% polyester. <laughs> You're welcome, said the man and stamped my passport and waved me on my way. This is absolutely true. <laughs> it is these rich and sometimes very difficult experiences that have shaped my life and through which much of my journalism and writing is constructed. And it is through this lens that I started examining my personal relationship with Islam, with Allah, God, and my connection with my faith. And it was while I was on this journey that I'm still on, almost 20 years later, that I decided to start wearing the hijab, the headscarf. As a hijab-wearing woman, often when people look at me, they assume I'm an immigrant or a refugee. They absolutely assume that I'm subservient and lack agency. Often in restaurants or at the theatre, I am talked at, not to. Waiters and ticket takers often look past me, they ignore me, and when I speak, I see confusion kick in as they try to figure out who I am. The only time people don't ignore a hijab-wearing woman is when they hate you or they suspect you of being a terrorist. 
In the past 18 months, I've called the police a number of times. I've been racially harassed and physically threatened by strangers here in Oxford and in London and subjected to hate crime based on my Muslim identity, choice of clothing and gender. And I'm not the only one. Post-Brexit and terrorist attacks in the UK, reported hate crime has increased by 29% according to the Home Office. It's odd that people always... It's odd that people are always trying to figure out who I am because I have no doubts or confusion about who I am. I know who I am inside and out. One of the main challenges I believe we face here in the UK is to understand that identity is multi-layered. We cannot pick one identity over another and it is perfectly possible to be British and Muslim and a woman and wear a hijab and have Pakistani heritage. It is perfectly possible to be all these things and more at the same time and to be comfortable with who you are and to understand your place and purpose in the world. I do not want to live in a society like France where I as a Muslim woman am denied my right to be a full citizen because a majority of society is only willing to view me as a child of immigrants, someone who is neither here or there and someone who does not belong. In trying to figure out how Britain is different from Europe, I concede that Europe has gone down the rabbit hole pushing identity politics onto Muslim women by obsessing over our wardrobes. Two years ago, while I was working in France on a BBC TV documentary about what it means to be young French and Muslim after the Charlie Hebdo terrorist attacks, I walked into the reception area of the French Parliament to interview Marion Le Pen, a member of Parliament and the niece of the French far-right leader Marine Le Pen. The receptionist looked horrified when she realised that I was the British journalist who had scheduled an appointment with Marion Le Pen. You cannot enter this building wearing that thing, she said, pointing to my hijab. It is not allowed. She was referring to my hijab and the French legislation banning overt religious symbols from public buildings. But I'm not French, I said. I'm British. I'm as British as fish and chips. She paused and then responded, OK, you can proceed. Everywhere I went that day, I was asked where I was from by taxi drivers and shopkeepers. I figured my British accent gave me away, but it was a French Muslim woman who pointed out what was my real otherness. I asked her whether it was, whether it was that obvious that I was French, wasn't French. She said, yes, we can tell you are not French. You wear a hijab, you talk with confidence, you are not apologetic. Thank you to all three of our speakers. Um, it is now my slightly challenging task <laughs> to try to pull some of that together so that we can proceed into some discussion about this interesting question of how our beliefs make up our identity. Um, one thing that I was particularly struck by, having been struck by, by, by many interesting um, things that, that have been brought into discussion here, but one thing in particular was that image that you gave us, Jash, of, of calligraphy and calligraphic art as a way of combining, bringing together and overarching so many different cultures um, from Spain to the far borders of, of India that had been brought together without espoused Islam. Um, 
And so I was, I was wondering if I could put to all three of you, um, and I'm, I may put this in a slightly rambling way because it is, it is, you know, it's very difficult terrain. Um, we've been all been talking in our different ways about fractional identities. You know, 35% Muslim, 65% polyester. Um, and then Libby was so interesting on her gender being. Um, not being at the centre of how you constitute yourself as, as a bishop, as a person of faith. Um, so, so I was wondering if I could put to you the question of what, what you might nominate as, as the, the, the overarching aspect of how you represent yourself in, in, in the world, whether there is something that... That, that, that kind of brings it all together as calligraphy did um, did in, in, in the, the example that Josh used. And I realise this is a slightly challenging question for you in particular, Josh, because you were speaking more as, you know, as were a scholar and a commentator upon, and the other two were speaking from their identities, um, their amalgamated identities to the audience. But, but I wonder if there's... If there, I mean, this can be quite light-hearted. If there, is, if there are certain things that, that kind of, you know, put your identity together, kind of brace you up in the morning, that's who I am. <laughs> um, um, the, the, I was going to say the, the light-hearted answer, although um, uh, those of you will know, actually, um, this isn't a, a matter of life or death. It's much more important than that. Um, I, I guess my my um, my core identity is as a Manchester United fan. <laughs> which, there which, are some which, religions greater than anyway. Which, yes. which, which, which for some is a religion. I mean, you know. Yes, they're, they're, in they're, terms they're, of absolutely, yeah. absolutely, mm. a really interesting interview with um, with uh, uh, with Manchester United. Um, uh, about just about that, uh, and part of what came out of that was that dynamic between. Anyway, that that's sort of a that sort of a joke. That, but that is my that uh, that is inherited. That that's I have no choice about that, and and, uh, and I inhabit <laughs> it um, joyfully, um, and have passed it on to um, uh, the the next generation. So that's kind of the light. There's a more serious answer, but we'll stick with the light hearted one. Well, it might seem very, very simplistic, but I think I think you mentioned this actually. Is really essentially, it's about being human. It's about having empathy, about um, understanding that we as human beings we need to be connected to each other. And I don't mean via mobile phone. I mean human contact. Uh, we need to be uh, in close proximity of each other with consent, obviously. Um, but we do, you know, we need to be. We need. To, we are part of communities. You know. We are part of tribes, and those tribes don't have to be at war. They don't have to be at loggerheads with each other. And it really is that simple. Um, I think we've forgotten, because of the way we're living now, I think sometimes we, we forget that that human contact, that dialogue, all of that is absolutely essential to being a human being. And I think we've sort of lost the art of conversation a little bit as well because of that. So. Manjash, would you like to pitch in with... <laughs> I'm not, not very good at being light-hearted. Um, <laughs> no, I, think, I think one way in which you pitch the question is very interesting because it speaks to the, the personal in quite a strong way. Mm. And what I think is that in the West 500 years ago, 500 years ago this year, not very long ago, actually 31st of October, Martin Luther banged those things up on the wall, or the door. And 
that model of religion, which and it is a model that's been taken up by other religions, not just by Christianity, the model of the religion that says um, it is a case of a kind of personal confession. It's a it's not a collective case, but if whatever the collective says, they can be wrong because there is a more direct personal view. That actually is uh, fundamentally transformative, and it it has it's, it governs the way. Mm you pose that question. I'm personally not a great fan of that model of religion. Um, I think that um, a world in which there is m there's, there's, there's more sort of flexible space and that you don't have to be held to such account, um, you know, it might have been a better world in some respects. Mm. Um, so anyway, that's a thought there mm. in that mm. regard. But it is, in other words, there's, a his it, there's something historical about the way that's been modulated. Because it is the case, just picking up what, on what um, you were just saying, but it, it was also there in, 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 in the other two remarks. Um, th there is that way in which religion, just to, just to look at that for a moment as, as, as a part of, of many people's identities, can work in very tribal, tribal ways, yeah. where the individual feels sort of called up by the group to, to respond in certain ways. And that, and that is, I, mean, I think you've all been very diplomatic in what you've been saying, but that is one of the underlying questions, I think, that we're, you know, that we're confronting this evening, that there, there are ways in which religion is seen or cast or understood or framed. Um, your examples were very interesting in that regard, as from, from France, mm -hmm. that, that, that has become very divisive. Um, and... And, and, and that's something that, um, you know, that, that, that remains unresolved. We're not going to resolve it this no, evening. No. <laughs> um, I, I, think I'd, I think I'd want to, um, uh, to offer that, the, that, that a response to that is, is not necessarily that, um, uh, that there are, that, that there should, that tribalism is bad or... That, that, that the options are tribalism, which is bad, or no tribalism, but a different narrative um, that, that recognises um, what appears to be a, a human drive that sets an individual identity within a, a, a broader context and that there seems to be a common drive to that. Um, and so it's way, the, the, the question, I think, is how do we do that well rather than should we be doing it at all? 